What's good, Hennessy and Tea Sippers? Welcome to a brand new episode of The Queen Chronicles with your one and only queen, Taylor Kathy and the motherfucking building. That's going to get some used to saying Queen Chronicles instead of the Chronicles of She. <sighs> Hope you guys are having a good week. But we, we got some bad news. Rapper Coolio has died. Mm-hmm. I couldn't, I, I couldn't believe it. Seriously, 2022, you really are a bitch. Coolio, the 90s rapper who lit up the music charts with his hits like Gangsta's Paradise and Fantastic Voyage has died. His friend and manager, Jerez Posey, told CNN he was 59 years old. Posey said Coolio died Wednesday afternoon. Details on the circumstances were not immediately available. When contacted by CNN, Captain Eric Scott of the Los Angeles Fire Department confirmed that firefighters and paramedics responded to a call on the 2900 block of South Chesapeake Avenue at 4 p.m. local time for reports of a medical emergency. When they arrived, they found an unresponsive male and performed resuscitation efforts for approximately 45 minutes. The patient was determined dead just before 5 p.m., Scott said. An autopsy performed on Coolio Thursday did not reveal the cause of manner of death and further investigation will be conducted according to case information from the country coroner. We are saddened by the loss of our dear friend and client, a statement provided to CNN from Coolio's talent manager, Sheila Finnegan, said. He touched the world with the gift of his talent and will be missed profoundly. Thank you to everyone worldwide who has listened to his music and to everyone who has been reaching out regarding his passing. Please have Coolio's loved ones in your thoughts and prayers. Actor Lou Diamond Phillips also offered his condolences as he recounted some memories with the artist. I am absolutely stunned. Coolio was a friend and one of the warmest, funniest people I've ever met. We spent an amazing time together making red water in Cape Town and we loved going head to head in the kitchen. He was one of a kind, epic, legendary, and I'll miss him, Phillips said in a tweet. Former NBA player Matt Bonner also recalled time spent with Coolio saying in a Twitter post, the rapper has a huge hoops fan. We hosted him at a game a few years back. Biggest crowd of all time at Spurs overtime concert. Julio grew up in Compton, California, according to a bio on his official website. Speaking to the Los Angeles Times in 1994, he recalled falling into the drug scene but getting himself out by pursuing a career as a firefighter. I wasn't looking for a career, I was looking for a way to clean up, a way to escape the drug thing, he told the publication. It was going to kill me and I knew I had to stop. In firefighting training was discipline I needed. We ran every day. I wasn't drinking or smoking or doing the stuff I usually did. His rap career bang began in the 80s and he gained fame in the underground scene. Fantastic Voyage was the first song that really put him on the map. Arguably the best, the biggest song, Gangsta's Paradise, from the soundtrack to the film Dangerous Minds, grew his star power to gigantic proportions. He won a Grammy in 1996 for the song. In the age of streaming, it has continued to live on. In July 2022, the song reached a milestone, 1 billion views on YouTube. It's one of those kinds of songs that transcends generations, he said in a recent interview. I didn't use any trendy words. I think I made it timeless. Over his career, Coolio sold more than 17 million records, according to his website. Coolio has also 
also has a special place in the hearts of some millennials for his work on the theme song for the popular Nickelodeon TV series, Keenan and Kel, and his contribution to the album, Dexter's Laboratory, The Hip Hop Experiment, which features songs by various hip hop artists that were inspired by the Cartoon Network animated series. In recent years, Coolio enjoyed the perks of being a nostalgic figure, making television appearances on shows like Celebrity Cook-Off and Celebrity Chopped. He also had a show on auction, Coolio's Rules, that aired 2008. <sighs> he was really special. I love Gangsta's Paradise. And he truly made my childhood fun. I always look forward to hearing that theme song every freaking time when Keenan and Kel came on. It's time for Keenan and Kel. Seriously. He will be greatly missed. You are a beautiful soul, Julio. Leon Ivy Jr. August 1st, 1963. September 28th, 2022. Best of love to your family and your children. Well... We're about to dive into some more PNB rock news. Looks like we found the guy who killed PNB. But it also seems like, hmm, his son was in on it. Really? Holy shit. Here we go. Three charged with the murder and slaying of PNB rock at Roscoe's restaurants. Prosecutors have filed murder charges against three people, including a suspect arrested in Las Vegas on Thursday in the brazen daytime robbery and a killing of Philadelphia rapper PNB Rock at Southside Los Angeles Restaurant Authority said. Freddie Lee Trone, 40, was charged with murder, robbery, and conspiracy to commit robbery, according to the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, while 38-year-old Chantel Trone was charged with robbery and being an accessory after the fact. A 17-year-old who was not identified by his age was also charged with murder, robbery, and conspiracy to commit robbery, prosecutors said. Chantel Trone and the teenager were arrested Tuesday and an FBI-led task force captured Freddie Lee Trone in Las Vegas around 1 p.m. on Thursday, according to the Los Angeles Police Department. Freddie Lee and Chantel Trone are married. And Greg Risling, a spokesperson for the for the district attorney's office, said Greg Wilson, a spokesman for the district attorney's office. My bad. The teenager is Freddie Lee Tron's son, according to law enforcement sources who spoke to the Times on the condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to discuss the investigation with the media. The teen and Chantel are not related, Rislin said. Okay, we can debunk that. Rock 30, whose real name was Rakeem Allen, had been at the Roscoe's House of Chicken and Waffles location on Manchester Avenue with his girlfriend, Stephanie Schobenhagen, on September 12th when the assailants walked up to their table and demanded jewelry and other valuables. One suspect was brandishing a firearm, according to police, and Rock was shot almost immediately. 
While some expressed concern that Rock may have been targeted after his girlfriend posted a picture to Instagram showing that they were at the chicken restaurant, law enforcement sources have told the Times that Freddie Lee Tron and his son were at the Roscoe's parking lot before any social media posts related to the rapper's presence were published. Chantel Tron was scheduled to be arraigned in the Compton Courthouse Thursday. The teen appeared in juvenile court and it was not immediately clear whether prosecutors will seek to try him as an adult. A court date has not been set for Freddie Lee Tron, but prosecutors said that they will immediately seek to have him extradited from Nevada. Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gaskin bared, barred his prosecutors from trying juveniles as adults when he took office, but created a path to expectation to exceptions to the policy this year. Rock's ability to blend melodies with his rapping made him a natural fit for the modern day hip hop. He gained national prominence with his 2015 single, Fleek, turning the viral Vine video into an anthem for women across the country. He went on to collaborate with bevy artists, including Ed Sheeran and Chance the Rapper on Cross Me. Oh my God. That is fucking crazy. Like how... What What the hell is wrong with people? Like, seriously, what the hell is freaking wrong with these people? All over some damn jewelry? You really are sick. You really are fucking sick. If this is your son, yo, you ought to be ashamed of, of basically making him do this. Or talking him into doing this shit. Yo, we're going to keep on with this story as it as it gets bigger. Don't worry. Don't worry, PNB. We're going to keep talking about you. Don't you worry. You are not going to be forgotten. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Next up on the news, Cardi B. My girl, Cardi B. Sounds like Cardi's been in some trouble again. She lost a multi-million dollar deal with Call of Duty. Oh, shit says that because it was a because of a court case and she's also beefing with akbar i can't stand akbar v i can't really i can't she's such a bitch cardi b claims to have lost out on major opportunity as a result of having to tend to her own call of duty the celebrity took to twitter to share with her followers as a a business deal she had prior to her recent court case in which the New York Times reported that she pleaded guilty to two misdemeanors. The Twitter post addressed a multi-million dollar deal with a 29-year-old rapper claimed to have with the Call of Duty video game franchise. According to Afrotech, the songwriter was uneasy about not being able to move forward on the deal. My stupid decisions from the past caused me to miss out on money now, Cardi B wrote on Twitter. I had a multi-million dollar Call of Duty deal on the table that I couldn't take because of court. Guys, think twice about those quick lessons, those quick decisions. Lesson learned, she added. Cardi B revealed that she missed the scheduled shoot with the franchise after a commenter suggested that that the franchiser, sorry, that the franchise should reevaluate the decision to work with the rapper. I couldn't make it because of court a couple weeks ago. I wasn't able to do the shoot on time, Cardi B said via Twitter. Twitter users users chimed in to give their input on the matter with some of the rappers fans requesting that the franchise renegotiate the deal. Nah, I need at Call of Duty to renegotiate the deal. Imagine Cardi as a character that would be so cool. While some users were against the possible collaborations, others took to the team 
TV personalities post as a word of advice. One user tweeted, Dear upcoming artists slash creatives, now that you guys are hearing it from a popular figure, I hope y'all take this seriously. Hmm. Okay, prosecutors reached a deal with Cardi B and co-defendant in which she agreed to 15 days of community service and a three-year order of protection for the victims. Her lawyer, Drew Finley, said that this was the next best step for Cardi B so she can finally move forward and focus on what matters most. Well, I'm glad that she's taking responsibility. And if, if they can renegotiate, please, I can definitely get down with that because that sounds like a really cool project. But girl, keep doing, keep doing what you're doing, okay? Keep doing what you're doing. Okay, guys, we're also going to be talking about the Jeffrey Dahmer series. I just finished the series and let me tell you, I am fucking mind blown. I am so mind blown. <sighs> this man went undetected for so long until one man broke free. The man, his name is Tracy Edwards, and led him straight to, and led the cops straight back to the man's apartment where they found the evidence that he had murdered 17 men. And also, I'm, the cops are not getting no praise here because. The lady, Glenda Cleveland, called them numerous times and they never, ever, ever, ever took her seriously, which is a bunch of bullshit. It really is a bunch of bullshit. Okay, we're going to be talking about Dahmer's victims. Um, let me let us take a quick music break. When I come back, we're going to discuss it because this definitely needs to be discussed. So stay tuned. Enjoy the music break. Yes, I think it's much more than physical You see, you got so many great qualities You make me laugh, hella smart, super talented Make me wonder what it's like to be a woman Yeah, I know it's kinda odd coming from your friend Often fantasize about us making love How we would feel just laying there in your arms Are you loyal? Can I trust you with my heart? I'm saying all of this looking in the mirror At myself thinking, will I get the courage To look him in his eyes and tell him what I'm feeling But I can't handle rejection So I'll keep on wondering What if we took the time to explore this thing? What if we discovered we were meant to? Oh, yeah, let me show you what my life can bring What if you find out I'm your one oh, and only? Oh, I've been wondering what you would do if I gave my heart to you I got enough for my heart to lay it on the line I'll do anything for you at the drop of a dime Anytime I look at you, I catch you looking back Got me wondering if we riding the same track In other words, are we on the same train of thought? Hanging on your every word anytime we talk Cuban with them other dudes, that ain't right for you Got me thinking, what if I'm the type for you? Hold on, I be loving how you ride for yourself Hold on, you be trying to do this shit by yourself Hold on, got my brain filling up with what is Hold on, like what if I leave them for a kiss? Please don't hold it and kiss me, I ain't 
the bad cat, not the past last guy, or the past last guy. <laughs> what if I told you I want you right now? Don't be shy now, what if you were mine now? Oh, what if you took the time to explore this thing? What if we discovered we were meant to? Oh, what if you let me show you what my love can bring? What if you find out I'm your one? Oh, I've been wondering, oh, I've been wondering and thinking about what you would do if I gave my heart to you, yeah. What if I gave you my heart? What if I don't let you down? What if I told you I need you? Did you see me holding you down? What if my flaws are too much? What if I'm not what you need? Baby, I got all this love for you So just put your faith in me What if I gave you my heart? What if I don't let you down? What if I told you I need you? Would you see me holding you down? What if I'm scared to move on? What if I can't be the one? Just put faith in you I wanna give you all of my love Take the time to explore this thing What if we discovered we were meant to You let me show you what my love can bring What if you find out I'm your one Oh, I've been wondering You've been thinking about what you would do If I gave my heart to you, yeah Industry's holy trinity, and when I'm online, I'm listening to the hottest, littiest station on the planet. You know, the BDE Music Network and 96 Jams FM. And if you don't know, you better ask somebody. Welcome to the Chronicles of She. Happy Friday, and it is officially September. Summer is over, it is time to get into a brand new month of hot chocolates, waiting for fall, studying, and coming on to listen to the tea and Hennessy with your girl on the Chronicles of Sheen Taylor Kathy, and it is all about empowerment tonight. I have a special guest. Her name is Nikki Pavi, aka Queen of the Bounce Back, and she's here to talk about her life story, her business, and how to bounce back I've been wanting to do an episode on empowerment, and she is the person to do that discussion. So before we bring her on, I'm going to give you guys a background on Miss Nikki Poppy, a.k.a. Queen of the Bounce Back. Matter of fact, I'm going to keep calling her Queen of the Bounce Backs because this is a queendom, and I'm a queen also, so basically respect the queendom. We are going to discuss a queen on here, all right? Here we go. Nikki Poppy, but most people know her as the queen of the bounce back. She is an empowerment strategist who focuses on voice and choice. Also, a personal development specialist, a certified clinical trauma specialist, psychotherapist, and practitioner of positive psychology, NLP, CBT, and more. In the field of social work for a decade, she focuses on foundational reconstruction by helping her clients strengthen their emotional resilience by using perspective training. Personally, the title of the Queen of the Bounce Back is very special to her. 
She has been battling multiple sclerosis for the last four years and is an advocate for those living with the chronic illness. Nikki is a champion of persistence, coming back from paralysis four different times, twice from the waist down, twice from the neck down, addicted and dedicated to getting back up, or as she likes to call it, the bounce back. She is very much an activist in fighting for human rights, and social justice has been a part of her life since childhood. A survivor of domestic violence, sexual abuse, homelessness, heartbreak, sickness, neglect, and more. Nikki has dedicated her life to speaking out for those unable to speak for themselves. Nikki stresses the importance of not trying to avoid the negative, but instead working on strengthening your emotional resilience so that you have the confidence in yourself to know you have all you need to keep bouncing back from the bullshit. Nikki has taught subjects on ranging from the power of perspective to modern day manners to neuroplasticity. Nikki's life's purpose, be who you needed when you were younger. And more of her mottos, life is what you make it. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. We are all a work in progress until the day we die. Do no harm. Take no shit. I help provide a simplified point of view to powerful issues using perspective. I strive daily to be a voice for the voiceless, a self-proclaimed love junkie. I am committed to being a beacon of light, throwing kindness around like confetti wherever I go. Everyone, please welcome Nikki, queen of the bounce back. back to the TNSC. I hope you guys enjoyed that music break. We are back. Today we are going to be talking about the victims of Jeffrey Dahmer. And we are also going to be discussing the series and where the survivors are today. Well, one survivor in particular is Tracy Edwards, the man who escaped Jeffrey Dahmer. So here we go. Monster the Jeffrey Dahmer story, a complete timeline of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims. Okay, guys. Now, if some of you are squeamish, I suggest you click off this episode, whether you're on TuneIn or this Anchor app, go to a different story. If you are into this kind of stuff, please try to sit back, relax, and take in as much detail as you can. Because I'm a, And also, from the bottom of my heart, fuck you, Jeffrey. Netflix just dropped a brand new true crime show, Dahmer, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story starring Evan Peters as the notorious serial killer. While the series is a fictional account of true events that went under the radar for over a decade, the gruesome murders of Dahmer's victims are very real. Between 1972 and 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer killed and dismembered 17 innocent victims, all of who were young boys and men. If that wasn't terrifying enough, Dahmer was known to keep souvenirs, disturbing souvenirs, of each victim after murdering them. I'm still, I still can't get that that freaking image of that him eating that liver out of my mind. Dahmer's merciless murders are still sparking conversations after nearly 30 years, thanks to the new Netflix series. Ahead. Find everything we know about the real Jeffrey Dahmer and his victims over the years. How did, how did, how many people did Jeffrey murder? 
According to the report by Biography, Jeffrey killed 17 men between 1978 and 1991 and usually preyed on Black, Asian, or Latino men. That's right. And he moved into a predominantly Black, low-income, drug-filled neighborhood where he would not be detected. Motherfucker. How did Dahmer kill his victims? Most of Dahmer's murders were calculated as he would prey upon would prey on victims in public spaces like shopping malls, gay bars, and bus stops, and would take them to bathhouses. I just added that blurb in there because the, the, the bathhouse story was wild. According to a report from Biography, he'd lure them back to his apartment and give them drinks he laced with drugs. Once they died, he would have sex with them and dismember their bodies and keep souvenirs like body parts, skulls, and genitals. He, he, I think he even kept a skull and a part of, um, one of his partners, no, one of his, why would I say partner? No, one of his victims genitals at his former job as a chocolate maker. He's disgusting motherfucker. Rape, dismemberment and necrophilia and cannibalism were all part of Dahmer's modus operandi, according to the crime museum. When did Dahmer kill his victims? Jeffrey Dahmer was sentenced to 15 consecutive life sentences because he murdered 17 men. And also that all accumulates him getting 900 years. Motherfucker was never going to see the light of day again. These are the men. June 18th, 1978, Stephen Hicks, his first victim. He was 18. November 20th, 1987, Stephen Toomey, 24. January 16th, 1987, James Dockstader, 14. March 24th, 1988, Richard Guerrero, 25. March 25th, 1989, Anthony Series. May 20th, 1990, Raymond Smith, also went by Ricky Beeks, 33. June 1990, Edward W. Smith, 28. September 1990, Ernest Miller, 22. September 24th, 1990, David C. Thomas, 23. February 18th, 1991, Curtis Strotter, 18. April 7th, 1991, Errol Lindsay, 19. May 24th, 1991, Anthony Tony Hughes, 31. May 27th, 1991, Connor Sensitive Bone, 14. June 30th, 1991, Matt Turner, 20th, 20. June 5th, oh, sorry, July 5th, 1991, Jeremiah Weinberger, 23. July 15th, 1991, Oliver Lacey, 23. And his last victim, July 19th, 1991, Joseph Bradoff, 25. On July 22nd, 1991, Dahmer's last victim, Tracy Edwards, actually made it out of his apartment alive and led Milwaukee police to discover other killings per ABC News. <sighs> Sick motherfucker. And the thing is, they allowed Conorak. I want to talk about that. What the fuck? What the actual fuck were you all thinking of giving this, giving that little boy back to him? He drugged him and he, he raped him. 
and you didn't bother to take that into account like what glenda was saying like yo he does not look good you need to take him to a hospital get him away from this man no you just wanted to just get away from him because they were because he was because donald was gay that's a bunch of bullshit This also the the series is also sparking outrage for a, one of the um, okay they were all vulnerable. One in particular was Tony Hughes. Tony was born deaf. That story, what happened to him, really angered me because he he loved Jeffrey. He he cared about him, and Jeffrey killed him. When I when Jeffrey went no went. When Tony went back to get his keys, I just said, no, 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 no. Please don't go back in there. Don't go back in there. Just no, no. That that poor man didn't have a chance. Here we go. Regardless of how you feel about Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story, Ryan Murphy's Netflix series has surely renewed interest in the lives and experience of Dahmer's victims. Most of them were gay and people of color, the dignity of their lives desecrated by both societal neglect and Dahmer's brutality. The cops did not search for Anthony. They didn't search for, sorry, they did not search for Tony. His mother had to take the law into her own hands to find him. Motherfucker. One of Monster's most heart-wrenching episodes is its six, which tries its best to portray the short life of Tony Hughes, one of Dahmer's 11 of 17 victims who were black. We are introduced to Hughes when he is born. Shortly after his birth, his mother receives news that antibiotics have, have been given to her son has caused him to have permanent hearing loss. For the first third of the episode, we focus on Hughes's life, learning about how, learning about who he was before his faithful encounter with Dahmer. Although Monster pays painstaking homage to Hughes in a dramatic adaptation of his experience, what do we really know about Hughes? Yeah, what do we really know about him? I want to know. Who was Tony Hughes? Hughes was born on August 26, 1959, according to FBI files. Hailing from Madison, Wisconsin, he became deaf shortly after he was born due to medication he received as a baby. He was also known to be mute. Hughes's mother surely described him as outgoing and happy, a man who made fast friends of anyone. While attending college in Madison, Hughes even aspired to be a model. Hughes reportedly met Dahmer at a gay club. Contradicting Dahmer's own account, witnesses recounted that Hughes and Dahmer knew each other for a year or more before Hughes was murdered. Okay. Hughes had been last seen on May 24th, 1991 at the 219 Club in Milwaukee. Shirley Hughes told the Associated Press that she was unable to contact her son or the friend he had, he had in Milwaukee, only knowing the first name of his friend. Jeffrey. One night, Donald reportedly took Hughes back to his apartment, drugged Hughes, and dismembered his body, keeping his skull. Son of a bitch. According to FBI files, Hughes was identified by his dental records, and his skull and vertebrae were recovered. 
Before Hughes was found and identified, however, his sister, Barbara Hughes Holt, also spoke to the Associated Press in 1991 when human remains had been found in Jeffrey Dahmer's Milwaukee apartment. It's scary, said Hughes Holt. Just fearing that one of those bodies could be my brother is real scary. She recalled that Hugh's family members were waiting by the phone after remains were discovered, anticipating that he may be found amongst them. According to reporting at the time of the trial, Shirley, Shirley Hughes sat at Dahmer's trial every single day with the grieving families of the other victims. They were all part of a local support group run by a nonprofit agency, Career Youth Development INC. For families of those whose loved ones to violence, lose loved ones to violence. She said of her son's murder, when it first happened, I thought I would lose my mind. After her son's death, Shirley admirably began to focus her efforts on helping other grieving families. Although we only have scraps of evidence and accounts to piece together the life of Tony Hughes, he will continue to be remembered and honored by the people who loved him. Good. <sighs> he sounded like a sweet man. Rest in peace, you beautiful angel. Seriously, he... That motherfucker is sick. He really is sick. Like, how, how could you do that? We'll never truly know what happened in that house. Wouldn't... We'll never know. We only got the adaptation. But good Lord. Terrible. Now I want to talk about Conorak. Turns out Conorak was not the only victim of Jeffrey Dahmer. It turns out both him and his brother, Samsak, were both victims of him. Jeffrey Dahmer victimized brothers Conorak and Samsak Simpson and only one survived. And he murdered them while he was on probation. Jeffrey, okay, you know what? We already, okay, let me just, I'm gonna skip down here. I'm gonna skip down here. The mass murderer preyed mainly on black and Asian Latino men and boys per Encyclopedia Barnetia. Two of his victims were even brothers, but only one survived their encounter with Dahmer. Okay, there was a trigger with sex abuse, so just letting you guys know ahead of time. At the time of his arrest, Dahmer had killed 17 men, leaving a wake of destruction in his path, according to biography. But this wasn't the only run-in Dahmer had with the law. <sighs> Conorak Citizen Phone, the younger of the brothers, was just 14 years old when Dahmer murdered him. A few years earlier, his older brother, Samsak, had been victimized and abused by Dahmer at just 13. Conorak was the 14-year-old son of a Laotian immigrant who lived near Jeffrey Dahmer in Milwaukee. He was killed by Dahmer in 1991 and was the killer's 13th victim. Conorak was born in 1976, according to Find a Grave. He grew up in Wisconsin with his family and older brother, Samsak. The Citizen Phone family struggled with financial challenges, so Conorak and Samsak tried to help out by earning their own money. What happened to Conrad's brother, Samsak? Samsak met Jeffrey Dahmer in 1988 at the time. 
the 13-year-old was persuaded to go to Dahmer's apartment after being offered money in exchange for nude photos. Dahmer then drugged Samsak and sexually abused him in his apartment. However, Samsak managed to escape. The incident was reported to the police. Jeffrey Dahmer was charged with sexual assault in 1988. On September 27, 1988, Dahmer was arrested for second-degree sexual assault and enticing a minor. Although he was sentenced to one year in prison with work release and five years of probation, Dahmer only spent a week in jail before he was released on bail. It's a bunch of bullshit. And if you want, if you want the details of that, go to Showbiz Cheat Sheet and the tab. Dahmer was still on probation for assaulting Samsak when he murdered his brother, Conorak. What happened to Conorak? Three years after Samsak's assault, the killer lured his younger brother into his apartment under similar pretenses, promising money in exchange for nude photographs. When Conorak arrived at the apartment, Dahmer drugged the 14-year-old and tortured him. The Netflix series says that Dahmer drilled a hole into his skull and then he filled it with acid. Conorak managed to escape from Dahmer's apartment briefly, running away from the building while naked and bleeding. The daughter and niece of one of Dahmer's neighbors, Glenda Cleveland, called the police after they found the incoherent boy on the street, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Officer John Bell. John Balthazar, oh, this son of a bitch again, piece of shit, and his partner responded to the call. However, the officers returned to the young, returned the young victim to Dahmer's apartment after the security, the serial killer insisted Conorak was drunk, was, was his drunk 19-year-old friend, per the Milwaukee Journal Senegal. Despite the vigorous protestions, the protestions, sorry, protestions of several African-Americans on the scene. The officers and Dahmer led citizen phone back to Dahmer's apartment where the body of one of Dahmer's victims lay unnoticed in an adjoining room. Court read. (sighs) Concluding that Dahmer and citizen phone were adult homosexual lovers. The officers ultimately left citizen phone with Dahmer. 30 minutes later, he became Dahmer's 13th victim. After murdering 17 people, Dahmer was finally caught on July 22nd, 1991, when would-be victim Tracy Edwards escaped and brought police back to his apartment. During their investigation, police found dissolving body parts, drugs for sedating victims, and photographs of dismembered corpses around Dahmer's home, according to the New York Times. Dahmer was sentenced to 15 consecutive life sentences for his murders in 1992, which was 900 years. He was beaten to death two years later by a fellow inmate at the Columbia Correctional Institute, according to history. The Citizen Phone family filed a case against the city of Milwaukee. After the horrific trauma their family endured at the hands of Jeffrey Dahmer, the Citizen Phone family filed a case against the city of Milwaukee and the police department claiming that the police failed to uphold Conorak's constitutional right to equal protection of the law based on race, sex, and sexual orientation per justice. The Citizen Phone plaintiffs have 
have not merely alleged that the police officers failed to protect Connor Rexon's phone from Jeffrey Dahmer. Rather, they allege, among other things, that the officers actively prevented private citizens from helping citizen phone and, in fact, delivered citizen phone who was a minor not to his parents but into Dahmer's custody. The chief justice decision to send the case to trial reads, in other words, the allegations are not just a police inaction but a police action action which violated Connor Exxon's and phone substitutive due process rights. The officers asked for the family's claim that they violated due process to be dismissed from the case, arguing that they had qualified immunity on as police officers. The due process claim was dismissed, was dismissed by the judge, but the claim of Connor X denial of equal protection was not. The case went to trial in March of 1995, and by April, the city had agreed to a settlement in which it paid the family $850,000, according to the Orlando Sentiment. Where is Connor X's brother now? After his brother's death and his own traumatic experience with Dahmer, Sobzanek has been living a very private life. He currently lives in Wisconsin with his wife, the tab reported. Otherwise, there aren't many details about Sunset's life after Dahmer. That's good. At least, you know, he deserves to live in peace. I really feel bad for that little boy. He... I feel so bad for him. Okay. Next victim is Stephen Hicks, the first one. 18-year-old Stephen Hicks was murdered in 1978 after Jeffrey Dahmer picked him up in Ohio. Stephen was hitchhiking on his way to meet his friend at a rock concert. Jeffrey took Stephen back to his dad's house and offered him a beer. The Netflix show depicts the paid lifting weights and drinking beers, but when the time gets closer to Stephen, to Steve having to meet his friends, Jeffrey doesn't want him to leave. When Stephen tried to leave Jeffrey, Jeffrey bludgeoned him with a dumbbell. He then strangled him, dismembered his body, and scattered his remains in the woodland behind his family's house. Oh my god. Where he would remain for a long time. Here he goes. Stephen Toomey. Jeffrey Dahmer didn't kill anyone between the years 1978 to 1987. His second victim was Stephen Toomey, who was thought to be 24 or 25 years old. Jeffrey and Stephen met at a bar in September 1987. When questioned by the police, Jeffrey confessed to, be, to taking Stephen back to a hotel in Milwaukee to drug and rape him. However, he claimed he couldn't remember what happened next. Jeffrey said he woke up to find Stephen dead in his bed and apparently had no intention of hurting him. <laughs> Bullshit. Dahmer reportedly transported Stephen's body to his grandmother's in a suitcase where he then dismembered and pulversed the bones. Pul pulversed the... I, have no I don't know what that... Oh my... <sighs> James Dockstader. James Dockstader was 14 years old. Oh, no. <sighs> James Doxander was 14 years old when he met Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey lured James into the basement in his grandmother's house and promised him money for nude photos. He then drugged, raided, and strangled and dismembered James's body. 
just a baby. So three babies. You you killed two you ki- you killed two babies. Richard Guerrero. Richard Guerrero was offered money by Jeffrey Dahmer if he returned with him to his grandmother's home. Jeffrey then drugged and strangled Richard, committed necrophilia, and dismembered Richard's body after. Anthony Sears. Anthony was a 24-year-old model who met Jeffrey Dahmer at a bar. Jeffrey Dahmer drugged and strangled Anthony. However, he also reportedly kept trophies of his murder. Raymond Smith. Raymond Smith was Jeffrey Dahmer's first murder after leaving prison for a second-degree sexual assault charge. Jeffrey moved out of his grandma's and into a new apartment. Shortly after, he met a 32-year-old sex worker called Raymond Smith. Jeffrey drugged Raymond, strangled him, and took photos of his corpse. He also dismembered Raymond's body and preserved his skull, which he kept close to Anthony Sears' remains. The photos and remains were eventually found in 1991. Edward Smith Edward Smith was Jeffrey Dahmer's seventh victim. The 27-year-old and Jeffrey Dahmer had reportedly been seen together at a club before. Ernest Miller. Ernest Miller was a busboy when he went to visit a family in Milwaukee on Labor Day weekend in 1990. Dahmer met him and offered him money to return to his apartment. An article from the Washington Post dating back to 1991 says Dahmer drugged Ernest and then cut his throat and killed him. David Thomas was a young man who went missing in 1990. Serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer was convicted of his murder and photos of his dismembered body were discovered, although his body was as was never actually found. David is one of the four victims, along with Steve Toomey, Richard Guerrero, and Eddie Smith, whose bodies have not been recovered. Curtis Strotter. Curtis Strotter was the 10th murder victim of Jeffrey Dahmer. Curtis was approached by Dahmer as he waited at a bus stop near Marquette University. Dahmer got Curtis got Curtis back to his apartment by enticing him with an offer of money in exchange for posing for photos. When Curtis went back with Dahmer, he was drugged, strangled, and dismembered. Errol Lindsay. 19-year-old Errol Lindsay met Jeffrey Dahmer on the street when he was encouraged to go back to Dahmer's apartment. When Errol went back to went back he was drugged however what makes his case different is that he was the first person Dahmer attempted to conduct experiments on Dahmer drilled a hole in Errol Lindsay's skull and poured acid into it in an attempt to induce a zombie-like state Errol Lindsay woke up but Dahmer drugged him again and strangled him later dismembering and disposing of his body we already discussed Conorak and Tony. Matt Turner. Jeffrey traveled to Chicago's Pride Parade in the summer of 1991 where he met Matt Turner, who was 20 years old. Once they were at a bus station, Dahmer offered Matt Turner money to go with him to Milwaukee and pose for nude photos. The Post reported once they were at Dahmer's apartment, Turner was drugged and Dahmer then strangled and dismembered him. Jeremiah Weinberger. Just days after killing Matt Turner, Dahmer traveled to Chicago again and met Jeremiah at a gay club. 23-year-old Jeremiah Weinberger was offered money by Dahmer in return for going home with him to Milwaukee to exchange nude photographs. 
He reportedly stayed with Dahmer for two whole days. On the first day, they engaged in oral sex, according to reports, and then the next day, when Jeremiah wanted to leave, Dahmer strangled him and dismembered his body. Oliver Lacey. Oliver Lacey was a 24-year-old man from Chicago when Dahmer met him in July in 1991. They met on a street corner in Milwaukee and Dahmer invited him back to his apartment. Once he was at Dahmer's apartment, Oliver had a drink which Dahmer had drugged and he was then killed. Dahmer's last victim, Joseph Bradoff. 25-year-old Joseph Bradoff was killed by Jeffrey and became the last one of his victims. Joseph was a father of three from Minnesota who was looking for work in Milwaukee. Dahmer left Joseph's body on his bed for two days before being decapitated, his head placed in the fridge and his torso in the drum. that's just that's just awful like seriously we're just going down there to freaking get some just trying to look for work and now let's talk about these assholes who is John Balazark the officer who arrested Jeffrey Dahmer and where is he now yeah I want to know where this motherfucker is one of the people from the show who stands out is John Balcazar, mainly because we see him as the officer who had the chance to help one of Dahmer's victims, who was just 14 years old, but he actually placed him back with Dahmer, who he later murdered. Oh my God. In 1991, Balcazar arrested Dahmer. So where is he now? John A. Balcazar was born on April 13th, 1957 is a former police officer in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He was the officer who arrested serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. He came to Dahmer's apartment after Tracy Edwards told authorities Dahmer had attempted to kill him. Balcazar, alongside his partner Joseph Gabrish, became known as the Dahmer Cops. He was fired shortly after John Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested and, he, and now and now he owns a pub. Oh, jeez. But Dahmer's arrest wasn't the first run-in he'd had with John Balcazar. After Dahmer was arrested in 1991, John Balcazar was let go by the police force. This came when it was revealed that Dahmer's neighbor, Glenda Cleveland, had called police multiple times about her concerns over Jeffrey Dahmer and what he was getting up to in his home. One particular incident, which we see play out in the Netflix series was when Glenda rang police after seeing 14-year-old Connor X Sinsophone escaping Dahmer's apartment covered in blood at, and after he'd been drugged. John Balcazar and Joseph Gabrish arrived on the scene and Dahmer told them the boy was his boyfriend, was an adult, and was just drunk. The two officers allowed Dahmer to take Connor back up to his apartment and Dahmer killed him. According to reports, in May 1991, both officers were fired after being found guilty for gross negligence. Balcazar still believed he did what he had to do in the situation, given the evidence in front of him at the time. Speaking to AP News in his first interview following Dahmer's arrest, he said, At the time, with the information we had to this day, I think we did the appropriate thing, the best that we could do. Bullshit. 
1994, a judge ruled that the firing of John Balcazar had been too harsh and he was reinstated. Both Balcazar and Gabrich got their jobs back plus 55K in back pay. That's a bunch of bullshit. Balcazar is reported to have retired in 2017. He is now said to still live in Milwaukee and he owns a pub. He is 65 years old. You are seriously, dude, like seriously, you could have done so much more and maybe that boy would still be alive. No, I don't believe that for one second. Like we did the best that we could do. Fuck you. Fuck you and your pub. How about that? Fuck you and your pub. Fuck you. Because of you, he was able to claim 17 lives. Fuck you. All right. Ooh, we got so ooh, we also had to talk about Jeffrey's mother. And it turns out, ooh boy. Joyce Joyce Dahmer has passed away. Oh dear. Okay. <sighs> when I met Joyce Rocky Flint in 1993, she had been in hiding for two years, sometimes under the covers. That meeting in Fresno, California began four of five years after frequent content. The subject never varying, her son's murders of 17 young men and her ability and her inability to cope with the monstrous of what he'd done. When I think of what Jeff did, I stopped breathing, she said during a telephone conversation in 1995. Dahmer, who was killed in prison in 1994, had often spoke to his mother from prison, usually once a week by telephone. I said to him, I asked him, do you still have these urges? He said, yes, mom. I'm so glad I'm locked up. I'd be afraid what I'd do if I weren't locked up. After attempting suicide on her son's birthday in 1996, she said she asked herself, what makes you think you can get off the planet when you want to? Rocky was extremely likable, articulate, emotional, charming, troubled woman who has been as caged as her son, I wrote after meeting her. She lived in a 640 square foot home, then then yet turned down 10,000 from a tabloid for an interview. Rocky was a woman of contrast, showing great compassion for families of the victims and great hatred for the vultures who tried to make money off of her and her son. One time she woke me in the middle of the night with a telephone call crying hysterically. Another time she wrote how sorry she was that my pregnant niece had been killed in the Oklahoma City bombing. She knew about a nightmare. In a letter dated June 5th, 1995, she said, I send my heartfelt wishes that you and your family can come, can find some peace concerning the horrendous loss of your niece. Making sense of the nightmares that shock us in this life is truly a challenge. There are no words. She was right about nightmares. What could anyone say to a woman whose son had murdered 17 people? At the age of 64, she died of cancer Monday, but her son had destroyed her life long ago just as he destroyed the lives of all those young men. Is there a God, she asked. During that long, tearful phone call that woke me, she said, I don't think I'm going to make it. I just want to die. I just want to die. I wish they'd let me die. Milwaukee turned my son into a demon. They didn't give him an insanity verdict. I do not deny that what my son did was horrible. Nobody listens. He didn't know what he was doing. 
She apologized for calling me so late. You don't deserve this phone call. She said, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. She also said, I can't die because of my son. Then she asked, how do you live in this world? I have to learn to live in this world. She ended the phone call in a way that she often ended letters as well as conversations. I send you love and light, she said, then hung up. Within a week, she tried to kill herself in a garage, but she couldn't even do that right, she said. It was really windy, she said, and she had trouble getting the garage door down, and she wondered, how am I going to get enough carbon monoxide? She said this almost as if it were a joke, as if she were poking fun at herself, but she had the sense to call 911 when she fell at the suicide. When she threatened to kill herself, I didn't take it lightly. Years ago, a judge told me she, he was going to kill himself and did, no matter how much help he was offered. I was afraid Rocky would end her life and I had called Gerald Boyle, her son's lawyer. Rocky had had similar conversations with Boyle and he had tried to help contacting people in California, including police. She trusted Boyle and had showed me a letter she wrote him after the trial praising Boyle for the dignity and compassion you brought to your defense of my son, Jeff. Psychiatrists had said that Rocky was not responsible for what her son became, but she always wondered. After I returned from writing stories about the war in Bosnia, Rocky wrote, the world looks very dark to me. Look at Bosnia. It's incredible what people do to other humans. It's just one nightmare after another. You must be glad you got home safely from there. She signed it. Peace and light to you, Bill. We would often, we would talk often. Then six months would go by and I wouldn't hear from her. In 1995, she wrote, my physical health is letting me down and emotionally I'm still struggling. So I often just can't find the energy to talk. For years, she worked in the gay community in Fresno and she spoke often, probably with her son in mind, about how difficult it was for a gay person to live in the United States. Her work brought her little money and in 1996, she called and said there was a foreclosure on her home. I have to be out by the end of August, she said. She planned to move in with her son, David, Jeff's little baby brother, she said. He's a sweet guy. David had changed his name, she said, and moved to another city in the Midwest after his brother was identified as a serial killer. She told me where David was living, but asked me not to contact him, and I didn't. David is getting married October 19th, Rocky said. I'll get to do the regular mother thing. I'm much better mentally, she said. She laughed and said, I started drinking vodka and V8, V8 juice. It's half healthy. Signing off, she said, love and light. She lived with several relatives, as I recall, but it didn't work out, she said, and she drove across country to Fresno. A number of people wanted her to get involved in writing projects, but she was leery. Referring to an author I knew, she said, I think he's hustling me. She didn't write a book, although her former husband, Lionel, who was Dahmer's father, did. She hated the book. The marriage had been over for years, but she the hate never ended. Oh, yeah. I think I'll write a book called What to Do If You Ever Become a Serial Killer's Mother, she said. The bitter remark came during a telephone conversation in 1995 when I told her I knew she'd feel guilty that she'd eventually be free of the guilt. I doubt it, honey, she said. I don't think I'm going to make it. 
I had interviewed Lionel Dahmer a day or two after his son's arrest in 1991. Lionel was holed up in a home in West Ellis. Doors locked, all the shades drawn to keep away the horde of reporters outside. As we talked, he went to the window several times and made unkind remarks about what the media was doing to his life. He was much more reserved, much less emotional, much less warm than Rocky. I had... I had gotten a message to her that I'd like to talk to her, but only when she felt strong enough. Two years later, she sent word that she was ready after colleagues had urged her to come out of hiding and talk about her son. When I left Fresno after two days of interviews, she drove me to the airport, leaned over and kissed me on the cheek. Peace and light, she said. With Rocky, there were good days, but there were two of two a few of them. Jeff is going to go down in history as a monster, she said. One of the hardest things over and over, he tried to remind me, he told me the victims were never conscious during his experience on their bodies. In his mind, in his strange mind, he didn't think he'd hurt them. On an updated note I took, she said, I'll be tormented in agony for eternity, just like they are, referring to the relatives of victims of her son. Over the years, until about three years ago, when we lost touch, we had dozens of conversations, and I can't remember when did when she did not refer to the victims and their families. Their grief will always be so terrible and without end, she said. For a while after her son's murder, she pushed hard to have his brain studied. I want something useful to come from this nightmare, she said. I excuse me, I haven't even I haven't seen one speck of light with all the horror that happened to everyone. It's the last and only thing I can do for Jeff. Another time she said, I want to make some small usefulness for my own nightmare. I've located experts who feel research on Jeff's brain could be useful. There was no study. After his death, she said she asked for and received a lock of his hair. During a telephone conversation, Two years later, she said, I'm much better mentally. It's just finding the right combination of pills. <sighs> but that was the same year she tried to kill herself. And now she's gone. A woman who tried to make sense of the senseless. And there's nothing we can say that she hasn't already said. So we'll end, so we'll end this her way. Peace and light, Rocky. I'll say this, she was responsible for what her son became because she took a copious amount of drugs while she was pregnant with him and it really did affect, it did affect him. That's all I'm going to say and we're just going to let that, we're just going to let that lie. Rest in peace. Next is Christopher Scarver, the man who slayed the dragon. Christopher Scarver, who killed Jeffrey Dahmer in two in prison, said in 2015 that he did it because Dahmer taunted inmates with food. Which was talked about. Okay. After one after 21 years, we stopped caring exactly why Jeffrey Dahmer was killed in prison by fellow inmate Christopher Scarver. Milwaukee's infamous serial killer is long dead and gone, and Scarver needs to live 1,000 more years to even come close to his parole date. 
done and done. But Scarver was back in the news last week telling the New York Post a brand new tale of why he beat Dahmer to death in 1994 and for good measure also killed Jesse Anderson, a town of Setterberg businessman who stabbed his wife to death near Northridge and tried to blame it on young black men. Scarver in a federal prison in Colorado now says he had come to hate Dahmer because he taunted other inmates by turning his food into the shapes of severed body parts and then adding ketchup to what looked like blood. Yeah, that was nasty. Duh. So that's it. Dahmer the cannibal had to die because he played with his food. Gerald Boyle, who defended Dahmer at trial, doesn't believe it. Neither does Stephen Kahn, who represented Scarver. Boyle served on a governor's commission and investigated the murders of Dahmer and Anderson. As part of this that duty, he went to a federal prison in Missouri along with Khan to interview Scarver in June of 1995, six months after the two slayings. At that time, Scarver never said a word about Dahmer taunting anyone in prison or joking about his crimes, Boyle and Khan said. He told me he had a hit list of five guys who he did not feel were worthy of the word murderer because of who and how they killed, Boyle said. Boyle came away from the investigation convinced that guards at Columbia Correctional Institution did not intentionally leave Scarver alone with Dahmer and Anderson in an exercise area so that so that he could kill them. In the Post article, Scarver said the guards helped make it happen, but he refused to elaborate. Khan said nothing in the public record supports that Scarver says in the new article. He recalls that Scarver said in the interview that we would boil that Dahmer and Anderson had murdered for unacceptable reasons and that it was humiliating to be in the same work detail with them. The post, a tabloid drawn to sensational news, included what it says are morgue photos of Dahmer. On the day the scar on the day the scarver I I ran other more popular stories included UFO buzzing NYC and this couple has the loudest sex in NYC. I cover both the Dahmer and Anderson cases for the Milwaukee Journal, as well as the murder case that sent Scarver to prison. There was testimony that Scarver believed he was a million years old. He also professed to be the son of God, so maybe prone to embellishment. Dahmer was such a militost, he would never have done that stuff. Boyle said he killed people, but he didn't taunt people. I never saw him do anything that would lead me to believe that he would mimic the deaths that he caused. I just don't believe that. <sighs> the Post ran an, a follow-up article quoting a Madison pastor, Roy Radcliffe, saying that Dahmer would tell prison guards, I bite, and then laugh. Radcliffe also said that Dahmer put up a sign in his cell that said, Cannibals Anonymous meeting tonight. Boyle told me none of this was ever mentioned when the commission talked to prison officials. Radcliffe baptized Dahmer in prison and parasite at his, oh, and presided at his memorial service in 2006. I wrote about his book in which he said he believed Dahmer was in heaven. When I contacted him again about the Post article, Radcliffe said he was quoted accurately but admitted he never saw the sign and did not hear any of this from Dahmer what about the whale noises those creepy ass whale noises 
These are stories guards told me, he said. Maybe the truth of any of this doesn't matter much. We all like a provocative tale, right? Still, I'm not buying what Christopher Scarver is peddling. Anyway, and Scarver has gone on to write books and he's also wrote music. And I'm saying, well, you took you took the scumbag off the earth. Good for you. Now, we're going to take ourselves a quick music break. When I come back, we are going to discuss one of his we're going to we're going to discuss Tracy Edwards, his survivor. So, stay tuned. Welcome to Vegas, baby. I want you to come and pay me. Give me the money, give me diamonds, give me rubies, baby. Take me on that strip. I wanna go shopping. Get on your knees and beg me, please, to let you in me. I wanna ride a belly. I wanna ride a belly. I wanna ride a belly. I wanna ride it. I wanna ride. A check, huh? Let's go to the moon. Let's get all so twisted, baby. Let's get so fucked up, oh baby. Let's stay up all night, oh baby. Let's do what's just right, oh baby. I know that you like it, baby. I know that you're feeling, baby. I know that you need it, baby. This shit is so epic, baby. It's fire the shit, right, baby? My bitches is bad, oh baby. You gotta pay way your baby. You know what it is, so baby. Let's get to the money, baby. Let's get to the money, baby. Let's get to the money, baby. Welcome to Vegas, baby. I want you to come and pay me. Give me the money, give me diamonds, give me rubies, baby. Take me on that strip. I wanna go shopping. Get on your knees and make me please to let you in me. I wanna ride it, baby. I wanna ride it, baby. I wanna ride it, baby. I wanna. I wanna ride. 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 Que te hacen feliz, feliz. Toda la noche aquí, aquí. No te vayas de aquí no, no. Si quieres llama a mami Y que te encuentre aquí, aquí. Hoy la pasamos bien, bien. Tú me chingas a mí. a mí Yo te beso en la boca Y te hago un split Las muchachas están ready Pa' ponerte a sufrir Las muchachas están ready Pa' ponerte a sufrir Ven para acá, ven para acá 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 Vamos a chingar, vamos a chingar 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 Welcome to Vegas, baby I want you to come and pay me Give me the money, give me diamonds Give me rubies, baby Take me on that strip I wanna go shopping Get on your knees and beg me Please to let you in me I wanna ride a belly I wanna ride a belly I wanna ride a belly I wanna ride it I wanna ride, I wanna ride I wanna ride, I wanna ride 
welcome back to the TN Hesse. I hope you guys enjoyed that music break. We are going to be talking about Jeffrey's Survivor, which is Tracy Edwards. <sighs> Jeffrey's final, Jeffrey Donald's final would-be victim who escaped and led police to the twisted serial killer's lair has been thrust back into the spotlight following Netflix widely watched miniseries Dahmer, Monster, the story of Jeffrey Dahmer. The despite and but despite the ending the sicko spree, the man held a hero lived a tragic life. Tracy Edwards became a national name in 1991 after he led Milwaukee cops to the remains of Dahmer's 17 dismembered victims, ending a decade-long spree of cannibalistic homicides that shocked the country. But Edwards' life quickly spiraled out of control and he was accused of killing a man almost two decades to the day that he survived the tragic fate himself. What? Oh my God. It's like Humpty Dumpty, his defense attorney, Paul Kaczynski, told ABC News in 2011. It's like he was never able to put the pieces back together again. Mm. Then, oh, uh-oh. In 2011, Edwards was charged with homicide in the connection with the death of a fellow home. Oh, my Shit. The Netflix retelling of the horrific Dahmer crimes begins with a dramatized version of Edward's escape from the cannibal killer's apartment on the night of July 22nd, 1991, after he was lured over with the promise of beer and money. After bolting from the house of horrors, a handcuffed Edward's flags down a passing patrol car on the street and tells officers that Dahmer had tried to kill him. He then led police to the apartment where investigators discovered preserved human heads, mutilated body parts, and photographs of mutilated men. The reenactment drew heavily from Edwards' testimony, which was broadcast by Court TV during Dahmer's closely watched 1992 trial. He was listening to my heart at night point because at that point he told me he was going to eat my heart, Edwards Chilling told the court. However, the brave survivor's newfound publicity attracted the attention of police in his native home of Tupelo, Mississippi, where he had been indicted for sexual battery of a 14-year-old girl. The then 32-year-old was extradited down south to face the charges. When he returned to Milwaukee, Edwards racked up arrest for drug possession, theft, property damage, failure to pay child support, and bail jumping as he lived in in and out of homeless shelters, ABC reported. On July 26, 2011, nearly 20 years to the day that he was lauded as a hero for escaping Dahmer and leading cops to his victims, Edwards was accused of murder himself. He and another homeless man were accused of pushing a third man that was living on the streets of a bridge into the Milwaukee River. The victim, Johnny Jordan, died before his First responders arrived, the network reported in 2011. Edwards was charged with homicide and pleaded guilty to aiding a felon, a deal which got him a reduced sentence of one and a half years, according to WITI-TV. The whereabouts of the now 63-year-old man are unknown, despite a recent renewal of interest in his life. Still, Sean Brown, who portrayed Edwards in in the Netflix hit, took to Twitter to share his feelings about the man he played, insisting he has so much love for him and the other victims. 
I have so much love for Tracy Edwards, and I hope that through my portrayal, you will also brown roach i hope you have love for all the victims and maybe in time you will have more love for one another empathy and awareness can create heaven on earth if we allow it we are one we are all beings made of stardust much love to you all god damn his life got completely fucked up jeez hey yay I'm just, I have no words. I have no words. And the last thing we're going to talk about before we go is the families of the victims are not happy. Are not, they're not happy about the way. They're not happy about the show, period. And it's the one and only Rita Isabel, Errol Lindsay's sister. I have so much respect for her. It's crazy. I really, man, I really wish they would have let her go so she could have strangled Jeffrey. For real. My brother was murdered by Jeffrey Dahmer. Here's what it was like watching the Netflix show that recreated the emotional statement I gave in court. Okay. When I found out I could read a victim, when I found out I could read a victim impact statement, I knew I was going to let Jeffrey Dahmer have it. I just didn't know what I was going to say. I hadn't written anything down. If I had, I would have torn it up anyway. It wouldn't have gotten read. That was my first time ever being in front of him. Whatever I thought I was going to say, that didn't happen. It all just came out in that moment. My plans were not my plans were to get up there and say how it made my mother feel and what it did to her and all this other stuff. But no, when I got in front of his face, it was a whole new ball game. I recognized evil. I was face to face with pure evil. I wasn't scared. That's not me at all. I never had a scared bone in my body. I believe he knew that too. And then I was angry because he he wouldn't look at me. The reason why I said what I said during that impact statement was because during the trial, they were portraying him as being so out of control, he couldn't stop. But you have to be in control in order to do the things that he was doing. You have to very much be in control. So that's why I said, let me show you what out of control is. This is out of control. I was out of body. I wasn't myself in that moment. Whatever I had on the inside, I let it out. I didn't hold it in and later say, oh, I wish I had said or done this when I had the opportunity to. And I think I was speaking for a lot of the other family members of the victims. The officers that pulled me away were really nice to me. They asked me if I needed water. I told them I had a headache and they offered me painkillers. They were understanding and then right after that we went outside the courtroom and there were all these news people just rushing me. I didn't even have time to get it together. I don't need to watch it. I lived it. When I saw some of the show, it bothered me, especially when I saw myself. When I saw my name 
come across the screen and this lady saying verbatim exactly what I said. If I didn't know any better, I would have thought it was me. Her hair was like mine. She had on the same clothes. That's why it felt like reliving it all over again. It brought back all the emotions I was feeling back then. I never, I was never contacted about the show. I feel like Netflix should have asked if we mind or how we felt about making it. They didn't ask me anything. They just did it. But I'm not money hungry. And that's what this show is about. Netflix is trying to get paid. I could even understand if they gave me, gave some of the money to the victim's children, not necessarily their families. I mean, I'm old. I'm very, very comfortable. But the victims have children and grandchildren. If the show benefited them in some way, it wouldn't feel so harsh and careless. It's sad that they're just making money off of this strategy. That's just greed. The episode with me was the only part I saw. I didn't watch the whole show. I don't need to watch it. I lived it. I know exactly what happened. Now I can talk about it without as much anger. That anger stuck with me for a long time. I didn't have the wisdom back then that I have now. But I have to make this stuff make sense and deal with it. I had younger children to provide for and protect. I still had to go to work every day. As time goes by, I can handle just about anything. I still have a life. I still have my health. I have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. It's something that over the years I had come to terms with. Now I can talk about anything. I don't want to walk away from answers, questions, my opinions, how I feel, any of that stuff, especially if I can help. If what I can say can help somebody else, even myself, then yes. The show bringing up old feelings did hurt, but it also benefited me. I benefit... I benefit from it because I can deal with it differently today than I did in the past. I can talk about it with not as much anger. I'm still learning how to forgive even if I don't understand and keep on with my life. I can't change other people or things that have happened. I can only change myself. My brother was a dad and grandfather. Errol's always going to be alive in my spirit and then his daughter I have to keep him alive so I can talk about him to her the positive thing to come out of this that the world didn't know that my brother had any children that has never been discussed to the public but he had gotten someone pregnant before his death today she's exactly 31 years old and this happened 31 years ago it's not about me anymore it's about her so when they mention my name, I have to always refer to her, Tatiana Banks, Errol Lindsay's daughter, and now he even has a granddaughter too. When I think of my brother, I think of how he was such a goofball, and I think he's going to appreciate the fact that I'm still standing for him until my last breath. He knows that I'm still here for him. <sighs> I have such respect for for Rita I really do and and for her niece Tatiana Banks I wish you guys nothing but the best in this world okay guys this has been the Queen Chronicles and thank you guys for tuning in tonight this was a real emotional episode and I'm glad you were able to tune in and listen rest in peace to the victims love y'all peace peace